I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. As the Iowa caucus approaches, the Democratic establishment is on edge. Bernie Sanders is surging in the polls, creating anxiety that the party could actually end up nominating an unabashed Democratic socialist who could end up losing to President Trump in November. With the impeachment trial coming to an end and an emboldened Trump about to claim vindication, is the Vermont senator too big a risk? And how will Sanders respond when former Vice President Biden and his other opponents launch the inevitable attacks aimed at taking him down and blocking his path to victory? We'll get the view from inside Bernie land when we talk to the national press secretary for the Sanders campaign on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So here we are, the uh, day it appears that uh, President Trump is about to um, be acquitted in the uh, impeachment trial, and all eyes are on the Iowa caucus on Monday, New Hampshire primary, the Tuesday after that, and I looked at the polls something I've been uh, starting to do more and more in this election year, and they're pretty startling. Here's the real clear politics average as we speak in Iowa. Sanders, 23.8. Biden, 20.2. Buttigieg, 15.8. Warren, 14.6. In New Hampshire, Sanders, 26. Biden, 16. Buttigieg, 14. Warren, 13. New Wall Street Journal poll out today Sanders 27, Biden 26, Buttigieg 7, Warren 15. This Sanders thing is real. The Sanders thing is real. In Iowa, Iowa's famous for you know voters making their decisions very late in the process. Things are are fluid, and it is still possible that you know you'll have a kind of a bunching up at the top in Iowa. But Bernie is definitely going to be up there and looks like he could be number one, perhaps Biden as a, as a close number two. He comes out of Iowa with a head of steam and goes right into New Hampshire. Where he's leading by significant margins. And so at that point, the question is going to be, how do you stop him? And there are going to be a lot of people <laughs> in the yeah. Democratic establishment who are going to want to stop him. The empire is going to want to strike back. And uh, that's going to get very interesting. Yeah, and could get quite nasty. And just sort of looking forward to Super Tuesday, because that's the play, right? I mean, everybody expects, okay, Sanders does well in Iowa, maybe wins New Hampshire. Biden, of course, everybody expects to win South Carolina. Nevada is a bit of a toss, but Super Tuesday is the big one. And here's a poll in California 
Real Clear Politics poll in California. Sanders 30, Biden 15. Yeah, well, think about that. The Sanders uh, team has been very smart. We had Jeff Weaver on the podcast a few weeks ago. He was talking about, you know, as soon as they learned that California was going to be moved up in the calendar and be part of Super Tuesday, they would have a real opportunity. One of the things they understood, a couple of things. One is, they have so much money, you know, they, they've just been killing it on the fundraising. And so California is a state because of the big media markets where you need to have a lot of money. They have that. Number two, Sanders has done remarkably well with Latino voters uh, this time around. And, you know, there are always questions before, could he put together a coalition with minority voters? He clearly is doing that this time. That's a big advantage. So, Super Tuesday uh, could be huge for Bernie if he goes in there with a lead. Now, there's an X factor here, and we talked about this on a previous podcast. That's Bloomberg. Right. uh, Because Bloomberg, counting on a Biden stumble, is going to be able to play big in the Super Tuesday states. His poll numbers are already rising. He's going to be in the next couple of debates almost for sure. And so it could be that if there is a Stop Bernie movement— that it really centers around Bloomberg, and that could really be a huge boost uh, for him, and then it'll get really interesting. One thing about Iowa to watch is that although the numbers are close, and by the way, there are some polls that actually show Biden in the lead in Iowa now as well. So I think this thing is is very fluid, but where Bernie has a big advantage, a couple of places, and they're related, organization. Um, There are a lot of questions about whether Biden um, has the kind of organization that can get voters uh, to the caucuses and also enthusiasm. And clearly, Bernie has enthusiasm on his side. Uh, Biden's always had an enthusiasm gap. And so in terms of actually getting people to the polls or the caucuses, in this case, that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, I I should clarify that uh, California, those California numbers I cited, that's from an NPR poll just this week on Thursday, uh, January 30, 30 to 15 Sanders over Biden. Pretty stunning. I think I've talked about before the um, rally I was told about that uh, Bernie had had in Venice, in uh, Venice Beach in December. Uh, the More than 10,000 people there, AOC, Cornell West was my nephew who was uh, the Bernie, Bernie maniac who was there telling me about it and it was a sign of just how much enthusiasm there is and I you know we we should, we ought to have a pollster on at some point just because uh, I'd like to ask the question how many points does that enthusiasm factor count for in polls like this. It seems to me it's kind of a kinetic thing. When you're talking to people, you're surrounded by people who are really jazzed up about a candidate. That is kind of a force multiplier. It helps uh, extend the reach of the candidate and uh, I think probably counts for maybe four or five points in and of itself. Well, we talk about enthusiasm being infectious, right? Yes, exactly. Infectious. That's That's the word. That is what happens. And that, that, and and in fact, you know, we're going to be talking to uh, Bernie Sanders, National Press Secretary Brianna Gray in a minute. Um, Mm -hmm. Really interesting conversation. And she talks a, a lot about the sort of power of narrative and storytelling and the way that Bernie supporters tell their stories, explain why they're backing Bernie. 
and with that kind of infectious enthusiasm, and that makes a difference. And, you know, with Biden, you know, you may get some of that, but what you're also getting is, hey, this guy's experienced. He's the only guy who's going to be able to stop Trump. Um, that doesn't always fire people up in the way that, uh, you know, the kinds of things that you right. hear about Bernie and, does. And, and, and let's put all the cards on the table. You know, when we had those Chapo guys, uh, the Bernie bros who have the podcast on, our numbers went through the roof, it right? It was amazing. So yeah. you're going to be hearing a lot, Skullduggery <laughs> listeners, about Bernie Sanders in the coming weeks and perhaps months uh, because um, they're very good for our ratings. So, but also, uh, let's also just uh, say that you yeah. know it was that conversation I thought was was kind of eye opening because you know when when we got that that onslaught of Twitter attacks basically right. uh, on yeah. us for being uh, owned by uh, Chapo Trap House it you know it kind of made me realize something that I think we were already sensing and other people clearly know about is that um, you know this is a very significant group of of, of people in this country who, you know, have a, a certain amount of resentment that they have not been taken seriously by the mainstream media, by the establishment, left behind. I mean, there is a little bit of a parallel to the kind of Trump phenomenon. And that fires people up. That's yeah. part of, it's a little bit of a grievance thing. I don't think it necessarily... Sort of like I, the Trump voters, right? Yeah, Same and, thing. Right. And yeah. that is... Same phenomenon. That is powerful stuff. And I think it is part of the reason... He's just got this army behind him, and um, that is not to be discounted. And not getting into, you know, anything about the policies or the ideology, you know, but and just in terms of the political power of that, that is really strong stuff. Well, perfect setup for our guests, so let's get to it. We now have with us Brianna Gray, National Press Secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Before that, Brianna was a journalist. She was a columnist and political editor for The Intercept. Uh, she's a lawyer, a graduate of Harvard Law School and Harvard College. Brianna, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And I guess I'd start out, we are taping this on Thursday as the Senate trial of President Trump continues. Your guy, uh, Senator Sanders, has been forced to sit in the Senate uh, for the last two weeks, uh, as have the other presidential candidates. How much has this disrupted your campaign? I mean, it's it's a little trite to say at this point, but our campaign slogan is not me, us. And I think that we're really, you know, lucky to be in a position to have so many surrogates who are so effective at imparting our message, who are similarly able to draw large crowds and keep people engaged on the ground in Iowa, and who I think most importantly are knowledgeable and genuinely committed to the policies that are really driving this movement. So it hasn't been as much of an interruption to the energy, at least as what I'm told from people in Iowa. It hasn't been that much a disruption to the energy that people are feeling on the ground there, although, of course, Senator Sanders would love to be in Iowa talking to the people more during the week himself. Are there like specific things that he can do and has been doing to sort of fire up the crowd from here, like sending in messages sure. or videos? Sure. Or... There was one night where he called in that he was supposed to be doing a, um, a live feed. We were, I think, the first campaign to ever establish a Twitch feed. And we do these live streams that get 
tons and tons, just hundreds of thousands of views, right? And it always surprises me that people will, will tune in at nine o'clock Eastern on a Friday and watch hours and hours of speeches, right? So one day he was supposed to tune in and there was some technical malfunction and he had to do it with really bad phone audio with someone's, you know, some kind of like, uh, you know, ad hoc arrangement. Um, but people are just enthusiastic to be anywhere close to what they feel like is a really singular opportunity for radical change. So no one was no one was complaining too much about the sound quality. Okay, we're four <laughs> days out, right, <laughs> yes. from the Iowa caucuses. So sitting here on Thursday afternoon in Washington, D.C., how does Iowa look to you for your guy? We all know that the polls have been looking really strong for us, but what we try to focus on is more of the intangibles because we all know the polls go up and down. The reality is that we have a volunteer effort that is just truly unmatched. We have a relational organizing campaign, which means we're relying on people to network and organize their friends and their families and their loved ones and do person to person sharing of stories in a way that we've, we've seen repeatedly is actually the best way to convince people, right? So you don't go knock on someone's doors. You don't harangue the person in your phone book about, you know, why isn't that you don't support Medicare for all? You share what we are calling your My Bernie story. And it's a hashtag that's gone viral several times on Twitter. And it's where people give these very personal confessionals. They talk about the struggles that they that they had paying for their mother's breast cancer treatment. You know, they talk about um, relatives who've passed away from illnesses that could otherwise have been treated. They talk about what they aren't doing in their lives because of their student loan debt, whether it's starting a family or buying a house or helping their parents out in their retirement. They talk about how meaningful it is for their parents to be able to be, rely on social security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you share those stories, people I feel think feel very disarmed. They don't feel like it's as much about partisan jockeying. And they understand that there's really um, human beings at the heart of this movement. And this is fundamentally a movement about recentering humanity and human dignity in a way that sometimes feels divorced from political gamesmanship. So, look, Kleinman and I are inside the Beltway type, <laughs> so we tend to sort of spout the conventional wisdom sometimes. And the conventional wisdom is that you're right now you're sort of neck and neck in the polls with Biden, but that if Biden pulls it out mm -hmm. and wins in Iowa— mm -hmm. And then let's say you do better in New Hampshire, but then you go to South Carolina and he clobbers everybody in South Carolina. He'll probably be unstoppable, that uh, there'll be no way for Senator Sanders or anybody else to um, overtake him. What say you about losing to Biden in Iowa? What will it mean for the campaign? Well, First and foremost, I don't believe that that's what's going to happen, right? Because again, not only are their polls strong, Bernie Sanders tends historically to outperform polls because polls don't take into account the groups that we are really targeting, meaning people who have never voted before, people who feel disenfranchised and locked out of the process. We are number one with Latino voters, and that's a group in Iowa that's been historically really under uh, under accessed and under stimulated and engaged with. Um, we are expecting to turn out younger voters at a higher rate. Well, let than me stop you there for one second because mm -hmm. there is one group where 
uh, you're getting killed by Biden, and that is older voters, and older <laughs> voters, if the weather is okay, do come out to vote in large numbers. So what are you doing about that? We're actually doing a lot better with older voters. In the last couple of weeks, as we've been centering Social Security and Joe Biden's repeated attempts to cut Social Security, raise the retirement age, et cetera, we've seen a lot of, a, a huge, I think almost a double-digit swing in older voters in our direction. And as you keep saying, we have four days left, and there has been some really good advertising and messaging out on that. We put a new um, ad out today that focuses on Social Security. We've had an ad out, I think, in the, this past week that focuses on Bernie Sanders' consistency, including on protecting Social Security. And that's a message that's very much resonating with older voters, and especially older voters, I think, in the South, where there are more black voters, we're going to see a big swing there because as you may be aware, black voters, black Americans tend to rely more on Social Security in old age, something like 50% of black Americans rely on Social it, Security it, it, it for 90% is, or more of mm, their retirement income. It is true that Senator Sanders has taken the gloves off on Biden, on Social Security and some of these other uh, issues. Do you have anybody doing oppo research for the Sanders campaign? You know, I would push back against the idea of it be taking the gloves off, right? There's a lot of conversation I see a lot online and elsewhere that says Bernie Sanders hasn't been vetted. When I think the truth of the matter is people have been attempting to since 2016 but the reality is his record is so consistent and he's been so authentic his entire career that there's no there there by Yana, contrast the, the what, question was no, do no, you I'm, have anybody I'm, doing I'm, I'm getting back research. to you yeah. I think the reality is that when Bernie Sanders is simply doing the job of what you're supposed to do in politics which is drawing the contrast between him and his campaign and his record and everyone else in the race what you're seeing is contrasts that don't compare make other candidates compare favorably to Joe Biden so the reality is it's not about oppo research. It's about simply stating the record as it is. And the truth of the matter is that Joe Biden is someone who has had a long career like Bernie Sanders, but unlike Bernie, he has had to run away from it instead of running on it. And that's just facts that he's going to have to contend with. For the record, I didn't hear an answer to the question. As far as I know, that's not, I wouldn't characterize that as oppo research. I don't think that, that that is, there is oppo research. I think you don't need to get into oppo research. Bernie Sanders has never been someone to run a negative campaign. He ran the first, what could be perceived as a negative campaign ad last week in response to Joe Biden's negative campaign in which he misrepresented his record on Social Security. And it's a difficult decision for someone like Bernie Sanders who genuinely does live his life by those values and integrity that he's known and respected for in the Senate and in Vermont, generally speaking. But your campaign manager said that when you're attacked, you will counterattack aggressively. Mm. The word He used the word aggressively. Do you agree with that? Is, is that the right strategy to take? When the stakes are what they are, when you have 30 to 40,000 Americans dying every year simply because they can't access health insurance, right? When you have millions of Americans suffering under the weight of student loan debt, people in my age bracket who are in their in their mid to late 30s who are postponing having children will never have a house because of tens and hundreds of thousand dollars of loan debt. When you have people who still haven't recovered from the financial crisis where Americans lost 30 um, 30% of their net wealth, black Americans and other marginalized groups even more, 40% of their net wealth, you need to fight aggressively because the stakes require it. I, I, I think that we would be doing our supporters a disservice if we didn't, if we didn't come ready to tangle. Yeah. Let me ask you this, um, because a few days out from the Iowa caucuses, Bernie Sanders, I think, can legitimately called by people, if not the front runner, a front runner in this race. Yes. Um, and so I think a lot of Americans who are just now beginning to really tune in to the campaign are 
focusing on Sanders for the first time. They remember him from four years ago, but, you know. And one of the things that they are reading about and hearing is that he is a socialist, a self-described democratic socialist. So for the benefit of our listeners, Mm. I think it sounds a little, people don't understand what that means. And there's a negative connotation in this country to this day with socialism. The polls bear that out. With some demographics. my right. millennials and younger actually yeah, have a absol- positive absolutely but with it, yeah. but i think you know 57% of americans of registered voters overall don't favor socialism so tell us what he means when he says democratic socialist yeah. it's about putting people back in power right it's fundamentally about centering human beings and workers instead of corporations and that is something i think when polled americans can absolutely get behind let's take an example bernie sanders planned to put workers on corporate boards as part of his workplace democracy plan 20% of corporate boards would board seats would be occupied by people who actually work at the company and there will also be i'm sorry actually 40% and there will also be a percentage of dividends that are instead of being paid just to shareholders who we all know represent a very small percent of the American populace and are wealthy, affluent, privileged pe- more privileged people in general, that wealth will be put into a fund that benefits all of the employees of the company instead. So what does that mean? That means the next time the corporate board is sitting around making a decision about whether to ship your job overseas to make an extra small marginal profit, it's the people whose actual lives are being affected who are going to be weighing in on that process and be, and have some insight into whether or not there are other considerations to weigh, whether it's whether they can keep their job, save their community, save the environment, or protect any number of the other constituency groups that are not respected by our corporate framework. Well, let me just follow up on this. And then Currently. Mike, I know you have questions. Sure. If Sanders is the Democratic nominee... Donald Trump is going to hang the word socialist around his neck like an albatross. Mm. And he's going to call him a radical. You're going to hear it, you know, a hundred times a day from Trump. Don't you think, and maybe you have talked about this, maybe there are plans to do this, that Senator Sanders is going to have to address this question and maybe make a big speech and explain exactly what you just explained to demystify this idea of him as some kind of radical, commie, dangerous, you know, socialist. Well, we actually did do a big speech last summer. There was, it was one of our most kind of watched events, a big socialism speech in which he really drew on the tradition of FDR, which is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about bringing back New Deal programs, great society programs, programs that were overwhelmingly popular and continue to be overwhelmingly popular. Social Security being the most popular government program in America, Medicare being enormously popular. What we're saying is we're finding going to say we're not going to structure our legal system, we're not going to structure our economic system to benefit the 1% the way that has been done over the course of the last 30 years. I mean, look, if we're going to talk about a reset, we should talk about the fact that this isn't anything new. When you look at what the pay gap is between CEOs and workers back in the 1960s and 1970s, we're talking 30 to 1. Any guess about what it is around today? It's 300 to 1. We look at people are, the wealth tax is enormously popular and it's no surprise. We used to have a wealth tax back in the 1960s where the top marginal 1% was 90%. Now that means that over, um, I think it's an equivalent of over a million of today's dollars or like $250,000 of salary. That means over your your income over that amount over a million plus dollars is t- was taxed at a ninety percent rate. Are you suggesting we go back to that? Well, we 
both a lot of people, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as well, have talked about not marginal ra- tax rates that are that high, but that are much higher than what we have right now. Because what we've seen is enormous income inequality. And look at the effect that it's having even on this election with two billionaires entering this race and Michael Bloomberg in particular spending more money than anybody else in this race without even participating in these early states, skipping over the Democratic process and hedging his bet that he can inundate the American public with enough ads that he seems like a genuine candidate without ever having to take the stage, answer questions about his policy and what he believes in, and really contrast his record to others who have been in this race for over a year. The founding fathers had concerns about accumulating wealth, not just because they <clears throat> were on some you know, redistributive pogrom, right? It's, it's not just about redistribution, it's about democracy. And they understood that when you have a small number of people with that much wealth, you can literally by our democracy. If you have $60 billion, you can spend a billion, $2 billion, $3 billion, $10 billion to buy an election. And I don't think anybody in this country, regardless of their economic incentives, wants to live in a place like that. So you mentioned before about the stakes being so high in this election. And for a lot of people, the stakes are that high because the number one priority is to make sure Donald Trump doesn't stay in mm-hmm. the Oval, Oval Office, which is why so many people right now are going after Senator Sanders on the premise that he can't win. He mm. can win. He might be able to win the nomination, but he can't because of the baggage we talked about. I'm just giving you examples of some recent headlines. Uh, Bernie is the opponent Trump wants. That's uh, Will Salatin in Slate. Running, this is New York Magazine, Jonathan Chait, running Bernie Sanders against Trump would be an act of insanity. God, God bless Jonathan Chait for so <laughs> consistently getting it wrong in 2016 right. and still beating what? that drum. And we had uh, Kevin Sheiky, the campaign manager for Bloomberg, on this podcast just last week, who said uh, the problem, in my view, is Sanders loses a general election pretty clearly and decisively, particularly in those six swing states that will likely determine the outcome of the election. So what do you say to the naysayers who say, (laughs) look, (laughs) you can't, it's too risky to nominate Bernie Sanders when the goal, the number one goal here is to get rid of Donald Trump? Yeah, the problem with all of those articles is that they're contrary to every piece of evidence that we actually have to rely on. So for instance, Donald Trump has more money than anybody else in this race by orders of magnitude and more enthusiasm. Who's the only person who even comes close to matching him? Bernie Sanders, who has a multi-million dollar well, Bloomberg, army. Bloomberg actually has the most money of well, sure, if you, including Trump. And sure, and but the, to spend the point isn't just the money, though. The point is where that money comes from and whether it connects and reflects the fact that there are millions of Americans who are invested in this campaign. And no one but Bernie Sanders can say that because of the number of small dollar donations that he's been able to secure. And importantly, small dollar donations from people who do what? The number one employer... The number one profession, rather, is teacher. The number one employers are Starbucks, Amazon, Walmart, uh, the U.S. Postal Service, which just gave us their much respected and coveted endorsement today, right? So, one, he Who has gave the enthusiasm. The sorry. U.S. Postal Service. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Yes. Just, All right. This was because today. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the so, union. It's the not union. The postal service. Yeah. Yeah. It's the union. Yeah. It's the workers. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Just to be clear. It's just to be clear. That's a good. Yeah. That's a good correction. So, um, so that's one point. We have the money. We have the enthusiasm. But let's look at the polls. No one has raised more money in Obama to Trump districts 
than Bernie Sanders. So we're talking about reconstituting that Obama coalition. Bernie Sanders is the one who has shown to has proven to be have the enthusiasm in those places that we know can want have once and recently gone toward Democrats, but which the Democratic nominee in 2016 wasn't able to secure. Let's 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 look at some of those swing states. Bernie Sanders famously, famously popular in states like Michigan, which no one knew thought he was going to win in 2016. And polls still show him doing very strong there. And Killed let's Hillary at, there. Let's look at the polls out of Texas and Florida. Bernie Sanders has been recently shown to do better than any other uh, uh, candidate in this race against Trump in those states. And I'm saving the best for last. There have been over 60 head-to-head polls between Bernie and Trump since 2016. And I think in all but two of them, Bernie beats Trump. There is literally, and I, I don't say this as someone who works for this campaign, I see this as a concerned citizen who is very much invested in Donald Trump not being reelected. Bernie Sanders is the best person to beat Trump by polls. And if I can just say substantively, substantively, we played this game last time around where we said, let's elect someone who is more politically moderate, who can reach out to this like uh, this phantom moderate Connecticut voter who isn't that, you know, ideological, who is offended by Trump's, you know, vulgarities, but who has historically voted Republican for economic reasons. The problem is when you look at the charts of where Americans actually lie, that average voter basically doesn't exist. There are people at one end of the spectrum and at another. And if you aim for the middle, what you end up doing is pleasing no one and getting a candidate who has none of the enthusiasm behind them that is required to win. What Bernie Sanders is doing is running on policies that are overwhelmingly popular. So if you look at what a majority of Americans, including a majority of Republicans want, it's Medicare for all. A majority of Republicans support Medicare for all. A majority of all Americans support his workplace democracy plan $15 $15 minimum wage, canceling student debt, and on and on down the list. And unless you run on those programs, you're not going to get a winning coalition. So that moderate candidate who didn't have the enthusiasm, who was the party's nominee in 2016, recently had a few things to say about Senator Sanders. I might have heard a little uh, something about I'm that. I'm talking about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He gets nothing done. And then I think just a few days later, Elizabeth Warren who does agree with him on a lot of things, uh, accused the senator of lying about her on national TV. Does Senator Sanders have a woman problem? Women, more women. I'm trying to get the statistic right. More women have given to Bernie Sanders' campaign than any other campaign. The, his leadership team is predominantly women, myself included. Um, and I find it to be disappointing so how- that the voters who are actually supporting him, that are especially working class women, are erased from this entire conversation when we're talking about women voters. Because what women voters actually care about is a candidate who is going to stand up for women's rights, women's issues, in a way that's a lot more broad than they are oftentimes defined. So Bernie Sanders has been an advocate for abortion rights since before Roe v. Wade. Where other candidates who have long records in this race, you go back and look at what they were saying in the 70s and it's none too pretty. There are articles from 1971 where Bernie Sanders is saying that a woman should have a right to choose regardless of what the Supreme Court would or were not say in the following year. He's someone who has lived his principles and who understands that women's issues don't stop at reproductive health. They include reproductive health, with men, which Medicare for All will fully provide for. But he also understands that 
he needs to be the he's the only candidate in this race who believes that we need to end at will employment because he understands that if you can fire someone for any reason that's a cover for firing people for discriminatory reasons including pregnancy discrimination gender discrimination racial discrimination right it's about understanding that housing concerns are something that disproportionately affect women as they're trying to flee abusive um, relationships right so to have a housing guarantee and to be the only candidate in this race who has a plan for national rent control the this is the kind of comprehensive policies that are aimed at particularly working class women, which is why he has this unprecedented working class coalition that is exactly what you need to beat a faux populist like Donald Trump. But we did hear that that after the contretemps with Elizabeth Warren, that he he reached out to women on the campaign, that, that he had a conversation. I don't know it was a call or, or exactly what happened, but that he wanted to do that to reassure them. To tell us a little bit about that. Um, I'm not familiar with that. I, I speak to him you know, separately. I've had a conversation with him. But the reality is, I don't know that there was much assurance needed on the campaign because we know who Bernie Sanders is and we trust him uh, implicitly. You know, He has a record to run on. He has a record of both being there for women's issues and a record of personal integrity. And I think that when you look at what happened with the polls following that whole incident, Bernie Sanders continued to go up in the polls. It didn't hurt him at all. And I think it's because when you have lived your life according to certain values, it takes a lot more than, you know, a solitary accusation to make people believe, you know, that you are not being truthful and committed to your values and that kind of a he said, so you don't, so, so you don't, you don't recall or you're, you're not aware of him no. doing that. How do you explain the Hillary Clinton comments? I, I can't, uh, I can't speak to what her motivations are, you know, I, you know, I'm personally, you know, disappointed by them, but it is what it is. She's entitled to her perspective, and I think that when you review what Bernie Sanders' record is, the fact that he did 41 events for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and would have done more if the campaign had been open to him doing more, and compare that to her record in 2008, where she did many fewer events for Barack Obama. When you see the laudatory letter that she wrote to him, you know, after the fact, praising him for his contributions and supporting the campaign. When you look at the unity tour that he went on with Tom Perez afterward in an effort to unify this country. Um, when you look at his dogged support for all of these issues, which have now been become mainstays of the Democratic Party platform, and to see how far he's advanced the end interest of everyday working Americans, even when he wasn't running for office, even when his personal glory had nothing to do with it. When you see the fact that even on his off off day, he goes out and has gotten a $15 minimum wage for tens of thousands of workers at Amazon and Disney, just through his own advocacy and, and advocating for things like the Stop Bezos Act. If that's what he can do when he's not even president of the United States of America, I'm really excited about what he's going to do when he's in the Oval next year. So if Bernie wins on Monday, um, yes. And then he- heading into uh, New Hampshire with a head of steam, pretty good assumption that the empire is going to strike back. The Democratic <laughs> establishment is going to, or at least a considerable chunk yeah, of I that like that we're the Jedi in this example, although <laughs> yeah. I am a Star Trek fan and All have right. to say, next time I want, I want a Star Trek analogy. But there is going to be a Stop Bernie movement. And maybe mm. what Hillary said was the first salvo in that. She was a, pre- a preemptive strike. So how are you guys thinking about that inside the campaign? What kinds of, what do you think you, you need to do? do to deal with that? And to what extent is that a concern? 
Well, this has never been a campaign that's been overly reliant on traditional avenues for organizing, for media outreach, et cetera, right? So we're, we have an infrastructure that allows us to be a little bit more independent and reach people without having to go through, whether there's mainstream media who might not always be the most friendly, um, et cetera. So for example, in addition to my duties as the national press secretary, I run the campaign podcast called Hear the Burn, where we try really hard not to have an obsequious, oh, isn't Bernie great kind of an attitude, but get real people on the ground, talk to people who are working on the campaign behind the scenes in all kinds of capacities. Somehow I'm, talk I'm, to people I, like I, Jeffrey Sachs. I don't Sachs. think she's going to have us on as guests, <laughs> right? would be more than welcome. We're just down the street. You'd be more than welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Foils. Beat up on the I'm press. Sorry, look, we had Peter Dow on, who was, I don't know if you know, but a part of the, you know, associated with the Hillary campaign in 2016 and one of oh, yeah. my most vocal adversaries on Twitter back in the day when I was an anonymous, you know, um, poster. Yeah. And he has come around and is now supportive of Bernie Sanders and is one of our greatest emissaries to people who might still have, you know, some residual resentments about how things happened in 2016. I also spoke to John Favreau, who I, you know, is someone whose politics don't always align with my own, but we were able to have a really interesting conversation. This was months ago when the field was much wider, but about what some, you know, the difference between kind of progressives and liberals and how we define ourselves and whether things are kind of unfair litmus tests or whether there are meaningful points of disagreement over yeah. things like Medicare for all, right? And so we're, we welcome those kinds of conversations. By the way, speaking of Twitter, I mean, and you talked about battling on Twitter before, <laughs> but you do a little battling on Twitter now. And I noticed some back and forth between you and, and uh, Neera Tandon, for example. <laughs> and the subject is, you. Know, everyone knows how legendarily loyal the Bernie supporters are, uh, but sometimes they can get a little aggressive, right? There's the whole Bernie bro phenomenon. I know you've been asked about this a million times, but tell us a little bit about that issue because it's bubbled up lately and it's become a kind of thing. Yeah, it's a really personal issue for me because, you know, in 2016, I was just an attorney, right? I had no political background. I had no, you know, skin in this fight per se, but I supported Bernie Sanders. And I was a casual Twitter user, I'd say, with a couple of hundred followers. But what was really frustrating was to be constantly told that I didn't exist because I was black and because I was female, right? And this was the persistent narrative. And Bernie didn't do as well with black and Latino voters then as he's doing now. Now he's the most has the most diverse coalition, um, number one with Latino voters, number two with black voters and rising. But it was still a significant component, a constituency of diverse people. And women have always been overwhelmingly supportive of Bernie Sanders' campaign. And in fact, I started writing. I became a journalist because I started writing pieces pushing back against some of the ways that identity was being weaponized against Bernie Sanders to somehow prove allegedly that his policies weren't beneficial for people of color, right? Or for women. So it's very frustrating to see that now that his coalition um, belies the narrative, right? It, it, there is no way you can credibly claim that he does not have the most diverse and in fact, most working class coalition in this race. Still, people are making these kind of wild flailing attempts to paint his supporters as somehow as bros. What? As what? As harassers as male as young Angry, as naive. white male trolls exactly and what you're basically doing is erasing the millions of women more women again have donated to this campaign than any other campaign and when you look at our leadership people like myself and senator nita turner who's one of our four co-chairs on the campaign um two of the four are women 
the violence, the aggression that's directed at the two of us that all the people who say they care a great deal about this kind of online activity never say a word about, right? And in fact, what is really galling to me is that to the extent that there are always bad actors in all campaigns or in, in every movement, Bernie Sanders is the only person who has ever spoken out and advised towards civility and respect. And I don't, I am still waiting for the day that anybody speaks up and, or, or you know, first of all, I, I don't think it's fair. I certainly don't hold other campaigns accountable for the vitriol that I experience online. No. You know, it's not, it's not any one person's fault that what some random person does, but there are folks who are actually associated with media figures, people like Neera Tannen, who they have relationships with. They say, happy birthday. I'm your friend with these people online who then turn around and say some of the most racist, sexist, I can't repeat them here, especially about Senator Nina Turner. And I think it's, it's suspicious how much of that negativity is directed at our most senior black female person on this campaign. And it would really be to me, um, a gesture of solidarity and, and genuine commitment to this issue if we saw the um, call outs about the Bernie uh, about online harassment being more equally distributed as opposed to being weaponized as a way to underline what it is again the most female most working class most diverse movement in this race okay let's talk about the elephant in the room Chapo Trap House. <laughs> now, as loyal listeners of Skullduggery know, uh, we recently had uh, the guys who do Chapo Trap House yes. on our podcast. This is after I learned about them from my uh, 20-something nephews and nieces who are loyal uh, uh, listeners and Bernie maniacs. Uh, and uh, Anyway, so we had them on. Um, I thought we did uh, you know, it was uh, we were civil and asked them. Uh, it was fun. I thought uh, it, it was, was friendly. fun. They're great and guys. Man, did we get bombarded afterwards on Twitter? You know, like what? You know, you boomers, you got owned by them. That was the favorite phrase. That's the internet. They yeah. owned you. You know they what? Owned you know what? Yeah. yeah. Anything we say now, yeah. uh, we're going to be we're gonna mocked get, yeah, no, for I know. being we're get old crap. farts but, was another thing that but, they said, uh, but, <laughs> uh, which I'll admit to being. Well, Bernie supporters are hardly ageists. <laughs> I mean, you know, our guy. All right. Now, Brianna, you did admit that you actually had listened I to did. that episode. So it was I great get content. your take on, <laughs> uh, on that conversation and them because they are actually you know they have a vast audience that goes to your constituency they do may i ask you first did you yeah. listen to their uh, follow up episode yes. about your oh, interview yes. oh yes okay yes. And what did you think about their cuz they've been they broke down i think some of the reasons that they felt you know you know like there was a not a meeting of the minds or you guys were on different pages in that episode. Well, so did I think you, it's fair to say that they we were, were coming at things from different places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that and, was pretty obvious. And, yeah. And, and then a lot of generational stuff. I mean, they just kept going on about us being, what? Old. Yeah. <laughs> well, come now. Like, I don't... Well, we can't do much about that. No, look, their whole right. thing was that we are yeah. a bunch of in, uh, Beltway, inside uh, right. the Beltway hacks. Right. And that we don't, right. you know, we just conventional, we just spout the conventional wisdom. But we're also reporters and journalists, and we were just asking questions, and, and I think they criticized me for trying to just get them on the record on some of these issues, you know, like on Iran and stuff. And that's kind of what we do. 
Right. You know. Right. I mean, I'll I'll let them I'll let them fight that, and that they particular will. battle. <laughs> but what what was interesting to me listening to it, it was similar to you know the podcast episode um, where I was talking to John Favreau, I think, and I really love those kinds of conversations because I think that part of the frustration, not to speak for them, um, but of some of the viewers, was that there is such a um, a balkanization of media mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. where so many people who subscribe to leftist or progressive ideology are not listening to the same mainstream sources as other people. So when the two sides come together, there is a type of question that seems like super obvious to people who've been living on the left or a narrative that we are very familiar with. And when people who are as esteemed as yourselves and so knowledgeable it, when it becomes apparent that you're not necessarily aware of this conversation that's been going on over here, it can be kind of disorienting or demoralizing or because because the left isn't yet held up to the same level of esteem. Right. It's not on the same playing field. We're often on online media um, doing things in a kind of ad hoc way. And so there's this weird cognitive dissonance that I think I was hearing on the show where mostly they weren't upset with you about your questions per se. But it was there was a playfulness about how they were kind of surprised that the question itself was being asked when there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of development of ideas around some of the yeah, areas. That I you think had that's very up. perceptive. I think that's true. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is it is balkanized. And I think to the extent that, you know, we might be in a mainstream media bubble they're in a bubble of their own. And I think they were really surprised at some of the questions that we asked. Um, and well, I was surprised, a little surprised by that. It's not the questions that they talk about in their bubble. Right. That's all. Right. I mean, yeah. Well, I think know. if I could push back up against that just a little bit, it's like, you know, when they say, you know, there's two Americas when we talk about racial dynamics or the most, you know, that, that idea. There are two Americas, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they are kind of equally naive about each other. Because if you live in one of any number of minority communities, whether it's because you're gay or you're black or you're Hispanic or what have you, you are confronted with the mainstream because you can't you can't get away from it. You still go to work and will predominantly work with white colleagues. You'll go to school and predominantly work with white colleagues who turn on the TV and it's friends and Seinfeld and I'm dating myself with my references, but you get my point. And so I'm not saying that there's like a per, they are like perfectly knowledgeable about everything that's going on in your world either. But I think part of the frustration is that we are forced to contend with the mainstream narratives. We are for, we, we have to have ready answers for what does democratic socialism mean? How do you pay for Medicare for right. all, et cetera, et cetera. And it's but, sometimes but frustrating. But that's because but given the, the stakes, vast majority of, of Americans who you're trying to reach don't know. Right. That's why we but ask the question. The Here's the thing. Given the stakes, if right. you agree with us that there is a, met, a healthcare crisis in this country, right? If you agree with us that is it unconscionable for in the richest country in the history of the world, world to have 500,000 people go bankrupt every year because of medical debt to have 40,000 people die simply because they don't have the money to treat treatable illnesses if you agree that this is a crisis because we are paying twice as much for health care than every other industrialized country in the world and yet we're not even getting free at point of service care they're paying half as much and they get to walk into the hospital to get treated and walk out without paying a dime or to paying some nominal fee if you agree that this is a crisis then I would expect that 
both the center, center left, or however you define yourself, is asking questions independently of us to say, gosh, how are we gonna find a solution? And if someone on the left is proposing one, to seriously commit to figuring it out as opposed to stopping at a level of, well, how are we gonna pay for it? Because you know what we don't ask how we're gonna pay for? The $81 billion military increase that a lot of people who are in this race voted for, for Donald Trump, right? But nobody but Bernie Sanders in this race has a plan to cancel medical debt. And guess what that costs? The exact same amount, $81 billion, right? So that's the frustration. It feels like if you're genuinely committed, if you're genuinely committed to these issues and we agree on the tragedies that are happening in this country that are happening, that do not need to happen, that are are, are about political neglect, about not a lack of political will from the people. Because as I described, poll after poll after poll shows that this is what all Americans want across the partisan divide. But about a lack of political will because our politicians for too long have been paid by the same, funded by the same interests that are interested in maintaining the status quo. If you are genuinely committed in this, then we should be coming together to ask questions out of curiosity and investigation and saying, how can we solve this together? As opposed to what sometimes can feel like, a, oh, I'm just trying to tip you off your back or this gotcha seems really it, exactly exactly right. and i'm not saying that's right. what you intended right. but i think that's some of the frisson that's happening yeah there. well look we've had the chapo guys on <laughs> we've had you brianna on and oh we had jeff weaver on. Hmm. right yeah so i think you know the natural progression at this point is we have to have Senator Sanders <laughs> on the podcast. Can you make that happen? Look, and, uh, as you mentioned, it's busy times back and forth between Iowa and impeachment and it's crazy days. But look, we'll see what we can do. And I also want to extend my invitation to both of you to come on and unpack some of these, these things. Okay, more. here's the deal. We'll come on <laughs> yeah. and Senator bird. Sanders comes up. Quid <laughs> pro quo. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> uh, Brianna, thanks for joining us and we will be continuing. Continuing to talk to you throughout the campaign. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks to Bernie Sanders National Press Secretary Brianna Gray for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.